All right. So, okay. so um, I've got a bunch of text messages here. Let me work through them one at a time. The first one is in relationship to what I said earlier about a more inclusive Anzac Day. A third, mm. of our, a third of people living in Australia right now who are Australians were not born in this country. Mm. We need a way of including everybody and we need to make Anzac Day into something where, you know, every person on this planet just about has a relative mm. who was lost or damaged or broken in some way as a result of war. Mm. We need to remember the sacrifice that they made and come together to uh, be determined for it not to happen again. Mm. Regardless of where they came from, and that's why I did a super radical thing for this year. We did, uh, for the second time, we did an interview with someone from the Axis side. Mm. So we had uh, Reinhard Galash, I think, last year, the year before, something like that, from the German side. But anyway, um, someone says, inclusiveness, what a good idea, but how long before politicians will use it for their benefit? <laughs> oh, intense. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, and then on uh, the LeBron James story, if a death threat is not hate speech, what is? Okay, so I just need to oh, say this. I just need to say this right here. You got to take the guy's word. Mm. He says it wasn't a death threat. He says it was a call for justice. Now you, we can we can all debate that. The long and the short of it is we don't know the answer. It certainly looked like that when he posted it. In the last days, a death decree will be issued by the governments of the world against all of God's people. The majority of people are followers of Satan and will follow his biddings. Okay. Then we've got... Oh, this one's about the uh, new laws in Oklahoma. Politicians can write all the laws they want to force people to do what should morally be right, but without God's Holy Spirit and new hearts, it won't change the world for better. That is an absolute fact. You cannot legislate... Morality. Mm. Did you get the answer? I think I. Did. I think. I think. No, you but oh. she shook her head. Let me see that. Let me see that. Wait, hold on. I think you may have spelt it wrong. Um. Anyway, reading on here, hearts won't change. Uh, Holy Spirit and new hearts. Okay, so you simply end up with a communist regime. True inclusiveness will become just to do whatever you are told. Whatever's f- what it's for your good. Is it Everyone not? Is before? it not this? No, it's not. It's not that. I was like... I looked across and I thought you may have written the right thing, but you didn't. Okay, so it's not Jeroboam. Yeah. Oh, because he, like, led the revolt. I was like... Yeah. Yeah, it could be this guy. It's not Jeroboam. it's not him. not Jeroboam. But the fact that I looked across and thought... Maybe he's writing the right thing down. Kind of close. Might be a clue. Okay. That might be a clue. It might not be. I'm getting in so much trouble from producer Shell right now. She's like, you're giving clues away. <laughs> She's on, getting guys. the stick ready. Who was this band who had no inheritance and was illegitimate? You know the answer. Mm. I know you know it. Um, let me see. What have we got here? Okay, so somebody else wanted to comment, and I think this one's probably coming through from uh, the interview, um, pointing out how interesting that um, the trilateral... Uh, countries Germany, Italy, and Japan became economic powerhouses in the world. Ooh, yeah. And sort of asking the question, how did how did that actually happen? Mm. I mean, you think about Germany at the end of the First World War; they were entirely wrecked, yeah, financially destroyed. And uh, what happened was that, well, there was you know a number of plans that were put forward to you know to restore Germany. Mm. Um, economically, 
And the Australian Prime Minister at the time was like, no, they've got to pay reparations. They've got to pay for this entire war. Well, that was one of the big things that led to World War Two. That's was right. because of how many sanctions were put on Germany. Like, that's you why they to, became so nationalist, is because they were to, like... You want, to, you, want to, you want to find the cause of World War II? It was Australian Prime Minister. Oh! Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was much more complicated than that. Yeah. But it was his idea for them to pay reparations. Mm. And uh, he did argue that very, very strongly. And, of course, that ended up with the Second World War. But, you know, there's this big question mark. How do you go from being that wrecked? Yeah to being a world superpower in which you can actually take on the world and have a fair crack at it mm. in 25 years. and then, But then wrecked again. And then wrecked again. And, and now, then another world superpower. Now world, how do you do that? Mm. How does that actually happen? Oof. You know, you can see how it happened with Japan because, I mean, they just got banned from having any form of military. Yeah. Well, that so was... they didn't have to spend the money on military, so they spent it on economic growth and away they go. But... But it's like okay, where where did where did Japan economically grow? Right, it was in their industry. Yes, uh, because they repurposed all their resources right. from the war, and yep. I, I so I believe, and they were in a very similar state to Germany at the end of the war. Like they were pretty oh, wrecked. Beyond, they, wrecked. they were like literally had been nuclear bombed twice. Like they were starving to death. They were literally starving to death. And then they become an economic power. I believe it's probably just the same way. Honestly, just when you repurpose, because okay, we, we you- talked about this in the interview. When we, we repurpose things, like when we stop focusing when on, beat our swords into plowshares, we grow lots of food. Ooh, yeah, that's dude. That's the, that's the analogy right that's there. What the Bible says, mm. you know, that's a biblical principle right there. You think about, okay, look what Germany did in twenty five years under the most grueling restrictions. Restrictions. Mm. Imagine where Germany would be right now if, at the end of the First World War, we had treated Germany the way we treated Japan. Mm. You know, yeah. Heaven. <laughs> oh, that, well, that of course, like all, like Germany in both the First and Second World War were like, like um, Germany and Japan after the Second World War. You know, they were financially supplied and you this know helped is very rebuild. true. And this is actually what they're bringing out in the text message here: is where was all that help coming from? Mm. You know, and who was driving? Who were the driving forces behind it? And who were the world bankers that were funding it? Mm. You know, and you've got you've got your world bankers out there. They were funding both sides of the war. Oh yeah, war was war was their thing. You, war was you, you big about, business, you know, the, bro. The the, uh, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and the you know um, <laughs> Illuminati and so. On. <laughs> well, America became an economic superpower because of its because of its involvement in World War One. And what and was their involvement in World War One? Selling money. selling things to every side of the war. You know, making money off war, like. It's just sad, you know. It is sad. We need to recognise all of these different aspects. You know, when we come together every year to remember Anzac Day, we need to remember the power that we can become and the good that we can accomplish through peace. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really in many ways we have been so fortunate here in this country. Mm. We live on the most peaceful continent on the planet. Yes. Not that our continent has, you know, not have a very long history of conflict. Mm. By any stretch of the imagination, but I would argue it's the most peaceful conflict, con- continent other than Antarctica. Mm. Know, no, dude, Antarctica is pretty gnarly. I wouldn't want to live on Antarctica. <laughs> like, talk, talk about peaceful in like a minus seventy-five <laughs> snowstorm. Like, that's pretty hectic. That's not super peaceful. You don't need to worry about people. You just need to worry about the environment. 
You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. So talking about war, our Bible study this week is all about war. Oh, And I don't know whether the writers of the Bible study actually knew this. I believe this was written in the United States, and they didn't know that this week would be Anzac uh, Day um, week, I guess you might call it that, if there's such a thing in Australia, but it's all about war. Let's go to Genesis chapter 15 and read the first three verses, part of the covenant with Abraham right here and part of that covenant that is transferred to us. Genesis. Oh, I had another text message come through, by the way. Ooh, uh, oh, and, and I have a big shout-out for Chris. Oh, shout-out, Chris. Let's Chris go. Chris came and joined us at uh, War Hope um, Church when I was preaching there uh, this Saturday, and it was great to meet him and his dad, and, uh, yeah, just fantastic to have him there. And somebody else texted through to say, Hi, Lyle, lived in Warhope as a teenager, went to that church, always a blessing. Um, yeah, so that was Let's go. Jolly. Dude, I have a shout-out too. Go. Sh- shout-out my mum because I love her. All right, let's read this. <laughs> go Lawson's mum. <laughs> I've met Lawson's mum. She deserves a shout-out. Yeah. She's awesome. <laughs> Let's She's just go. awesome. Okay, Genesis chapter. I, I don't know. I just felt left out. I just wanted to shout out. <laughs> All right. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 to 3. The Bible says, Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son, since you've given me no children? Eliezer of Damascus, a servant of my house, Household will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. There you go. Mm-hmm. All right. So God promises that He will be something to Abraham. What is that? Uh, that He will be uh, giving him yeah. stuff. Sorry, I'm like I'm like scrambling for the. Re- was it in these first three verses? It's, uh, it's right here in the first three verses. Of yeah. these things. Uh, it's in verse one. Yeah, well, my Bible says, you know, do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. This is what yours says. Yeah, your translation is so lame. That because I'm like I'm looking for the noun, right? I'm like yeah. I'm like oh, where's There's the word? And I'm like, noun, yeah, what is it? After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, "Fear not, Abram." I am your shield. Oh, let's go. That's epic. That's so much. Yeah. I will protect you and your reward will be great. Such a dodgy NLT. (laughs) KJV. Um, And your exceeding great reward, it says here. Mm. Exceeding great reward. Okay, so we're talking about a shield this morning. And we're going to pick up this theme and talk about, you know, the necessity of it and what that actually means with the covenant for us. Because God... These promises are made to us, and what does it mean that yeah, God wow. is our God is our shield? Which I think is relevant to the subject that we've been talking about somewhat this morning, as we've discussed <laughs> war and warfare and so forth. But there's a great um, there's a great story here. I just wanted to share it with you. It's a um, it's a it's a great illustration. A father and his ten year old daughter were spending their holiday at the seashore. One day they went out to enjoy a swim in the ocean, and although they were both good swimmers, some distance out from the shore they became separated. The father, realising that they were being carried out to the sea by a rip, called to his child. He says, Mary, I'm going to the shore for help. If you get tired, turn on your back. You can float all day that way. I'll come back for you. Before long, many searchers and boats were scurrying over the face of the water, hunting for one small girl. Kind of hard to see a girl who's floating on her back, you know, um, from a boat because Mm. it's sort of like a face coming out of the water and 
unless you've actually been in that kind of situation, you would not believe how challenging that can be. But anyway, um, hundreds of people on the shore had heard the news and waiting anxiously. It was four hours before they found her. Far from land. She was calmly floating on her back and at all, not at all frightened. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, tears, uh, cheers and tears of joy and relief greeted the rescuers when they came back to land with their precious burden. But the child took it all calmly. She seemed to think it was strange the way they acted. She said, Father, Father said I could float all day on my back and that he would come for me. So I just swam and floated because I knew he'd come. Mm. You know, you got to love the faith of a child. And, you yeah, know, that's epic. In, in the promise of the father. Mm. It's like, yeah, Dad said I can do this. Dad said I, I'll, I'll not sink if I float on my back and I'm not going to die of exhaustion floating on my back, so I'll just do that. Mm. Four hours is a pretty decent effort, but... Um, we, we need to then ask ourselves the question here. Okay, God says a very similar promise when he says, you don't need to worry, you don't need to stress mm. out, I'll be your shield. Mm. Okay, so let's think about, first of all, we're going to start with the context of why God comes to Abram in chapter 15 and says, I will be your shield. So chapter 14, do you remember what chapter 14 is all about? And chapter, what is that, chapter, 14. chapter 14 is all about Abram's uh, rescue mission of it is, Lot. It is. It's and one it's, of the greatest war stories in the Bible. Yeah, it's like a, a, a small band of servants go up against, what is it, four kings and their armies? Well, they go up against the United States. Essentially. Essentially. Yeah. yeah. Because they go up against the Elamite Empire. Now, mm. what you've got to understand here is the Elamite Empire are from the northern side of the Persian Gulf. Okay, just start by wrapping your head around that for a moment. Mm. If you can picture in your mind, that's where they come from. They have extended their empire from that region all the way down through the Fertile Crescent. Mm. When you when you read it there in Chapter 14, as far as the border of Egypt. Yeah, well. You know, this is an empire the size of the Babylonian Empire almost. Mm. Not quite, but. Definitely up there. But, yeah, thousands of years before as well. This is the... Yeah, that's right. That's right. This is the world empire in its day. Yeah. It is the equivalent. It dominates the world in the same way that the United States dominates the world militarily today. Mm. And, of course, uh, Abraham and his family, they live on the, the far fringes of that empire. Uh, that empire has conquered the Jordan Valley because what we've got to understand is the Jordan Valley was an incredibly valuable place at that time. Mm. Um, had a, you know, it's below sea level, has constant temperature. Um, it has, um, at that time, had very high rainfall. It had rich alluvial soil. And it was basically a rainforest. Yeah, well. It was just, you know, you go there today and it's nothing like that. But um, the climate has changed. The world has changed. Um, and... It's just a different place. 4,000 years of constant warfare through that region, you know. Yeah. We could list a whole bunch of reasons as to why it is a very, very different place than what it used to be. But nonetheless, this was a place that was wealthy and so the Elamites had conquered it and made it a part of their empire. And this particular region, being on the fringes of the empire, being on the very outskirts of the empire, had decided, yeah, you know what, we're a long way from Elam, like a really long way. And so we think that we could get away with 
breaking away from the empire and going independent. Yeah. Because would the Elamites really bother raising an army to come all this distance again? Mm. And so they do. They break away independent, and you've got five kings there that unite together. They form a coalition, and they break away together. And it takes the Elamites a year to put their army together. So this is no small force. Yeah, well. When they come down, the Bible lists 14 different nations, countries, and people groups, towns, and cities that the Elamites conquer. Mm. So basically what is happening is like, well, if we're going to put together an army to retake that particular part of our empire, while we're there, we may as well expand our empire in the process. Mm. And so they do. And so you've got the entire weight of the Elamite Empire that just descends upon the Jordan Valley and just destroys those cities, takes everybody captive, takes all of the wealth. And these were cities that, as far as wealth goes, you know, man-to-man level of wealth, they rivaled the big civilizations like Ur. Mm. You know, they were smaller cities, but as far as individual wealth goes... They were fabulously wealthy yeah, wow. because of the environment that they lived in. Mm. And, of course, you've got uh, Lot and his family um, who are living in Sodom and so they are captured, they are taken off as, as, uh, as captives. And in those days, slaves were just as valuable as, you know, the gold and silver and all the other plunder that you could take, the flocks and the herds, et cetera, mm. et cetera, et cetera. Well, whilst slavery has ever existed, it's been like that. Yeah. Like slaves are valuable as. That's right. Mm. Absolutely. And so this is all context to God telling Abraham, I'll be your shield. Mm. Because what we're going to find is that Abraham decides to do something about this. Yeah, well. He decides he's going to take on the United States. And he's not even his own country. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Abraham. Abraham. Okay, so we're we're looking at uh, this attack made by the Elamites, which is a major, Mm. major invasion force. He goes up against them, the Bible says, with 318 men. Mm. And there is no way in a million years, because in those days, uh, battles were won by weight of numbers. This was the the days before professional armies and so forth, and it came down to weight of numbers, and there's no way that you win against... Um, you know, the United States of the world in those days mm-hmm. with 318 men. But he does, and he, can, he, he defeats them so convincingly that he drives them 120 kilometres further north. Yeah, well. You know, that's like, it's not, just, it's not just that he snuck in there one night and stole his family away. Mm. He actually thrashes he, the Elamites. He hits them head on. He just, he just thrashes them. He pulls that off in a night attack, which... Night attacks are the hardest thing to do, even mm. in today's society when everybody has you know night observation devices and so forth. That is the most difficult environment to fight in. Mm. And Abraham is able to accomplish that with no light, yeah, no wow. observation devices, nothing like that. He's able to do all of that. And as a result of that, he is, um, he is now in a very unique position mm. because he's made a lot of enemies, hasn't he? Yeah, wow. You imagine the surviving Elamites when they get back to Elam. Mm. You imagine the story that they're going to be told. They're coming back with their tails between their legs. And it's not that they have been beaten by, you know, some powerful uh, Jordanian coalition. They haven't. 
they've been whipped by a Bedouin tribesman, you know, a, a, a nomadic tribesman. Mm. Who, he doesn't even own a city. He lives in a tent. That would honestly have to be freaky. Like, like imagine, imagine being one of those Elamite soldiers and just seeing, because you got to think like the power of God was on this guy. The spirit of God was working through Abraham and his men. And you've got to, you've got to be watching him just systematically destroy your army in battle. Like supernaturally, you know, it doesn't say that, uh, you know, God's fire rained down from heaven. It's just that these men were empowered by God to, uh, you know, we, we don't, you know, we don't know the logistics. Like there's, there are are times where the Bible says that, you know, soldiers were blinded, you know, struck with blindness or whatever, but like you're just there watching your army just be fully destroyed. Like that would be freaky, bro. That would be. Okay. So imagine that you are a, um, a small, a small, uh, and, and, and the Elamites would have looked at Abraham at this particular time as being a warlord. Yeah, that's what that's how they would have viewed him. Think think of yourself as a uh, a small warlord operating somewhere in Western New South Wales, mm. and you've stirred up the US. Mm. You'd be feeling a bit insecure, wouldn't you? <laughs> you just made your worst enemy the United States, and you're this little insignificant warlord. Yeah, you know. You, li- you would be worried. You've got a 318 man set up in Lake Sinclair. Like- <laughs> <laughs> you would be a very worried person. And so this is the situation that Abraham finds himself in. He did the right thing. He rescued his family. Mm. But in doing so, he's made the greatest enemy that there is in the world at that time. Yeah, wow. It goes further than that. Because when they came down and they invaded, the Bible talks about 14 different people, groups, cities, nations, Etc. that they conquered. And they took all of the spoil and all of the wealth of all of those cities. And the, and the, and the cities in the Jordanian Alliance were, you know, the wealthiest cities in the region. And they've got all that gold, all that silver, all those slaves, all that livestock, and they're taking it all back to Elam. And now Abraham owns it all. Mm. Okay, so now think about this. You're an insignificant warlord somewhere in western New South Wales out by Lake Sinclair or whatever, it might be. Um, so you're somewhere out there. You've stirred up the United States. Now they, they, they are your worst enemy. They have made you, you know, public enemy number one. And you have the treasure that they want that used to belong to them and was hard-earned by them. Mm. Okay, you've just painted a massive target on your back, not just from the Elamites, but from... Well, kind of everyone. Everyone else, because they're like, well, he's only got 318 men. Mm. How hard can that really be? Just go and take it. Yeah, well. And so you can see where Abraham could be feeling unbelievably um, insecure at this particular time. Now, here's the other thing by conquering the Elamites, by default, he owns the land that they had conquered. Yes. So he's in charge of, theoretically, if he wants it. Now, he doesn't keep any of the wealth. We know that. And he doesn't Mm. keep any of the land. But, you know, somebody else went back before Twitter was invented living, you know, some distance away. They're not going to know that. Mm. They're just going to think, Abraham's living in a tent. He doesn't even have a wall. Yeah, And he's wealthy. Um, Let's go get it. And and he hasn't taken, you know, the... the, the land, everything that has taken place in chapter 14 has painted a massive target on Abraham's back. Mm. And God comes to Abraham and God comes with this message 
This is after these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in the vision saying, Fear not, I am your shield. Mm. That would have had an impact on Abraham, greater than what it has on us today. But that promise applies to us in the same way it applied to Abraham. God says to us, I will be your shield. Mm. You know, it goes on and Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me seeing I go childless? And, you know, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And and Abraham said, Behold, no man, uh, behold to me you have given no seed. And lo, one born in my house is my heir. Mm. And so, you know, even Abraham looks at it and his faith struggles to understand what God can do. To- You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. And now we have come to... Question of the day. All right, Lyle, our question today is, why do we need to keep the Sabbath if Jesus is our Sabbath rest according to Hebrews chapter 4? Okay, so I hear this a lot. But if you read Hebrews 4, it doesn't say that. In fact, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. And it's kind of one of those pious things a lot of Christians like to spout off, like, oh, Jesus is our rest, Jesus is our rest. Um, But it's one of the missing verses in the Bible, simply not there. Um, So what we do need to look at is what is Hebrews 4 all about and what is the Sabbath talking about in Hebrews chapter 4? First of all, um, in Hebrews 4, the Sabbath is used as a symbol of salvation by grace alone and resting from salvation by works. Um, And so the question that then comes up is, okay, why does God single out the Sabbath commandment? Why does he single this one out as a symbol of salvation by grace alone? Why not use one of the other commandments? The answer is going to be very simple, very clear, because this is the only commandment that can be a symbol of salvation by grace. But before we get into it, we need to note that you know the Sabbath was given at creation. Um, it was reinstated or repeated or re- reiterated or reminded at Mount Sinai. God's people kept it all the way down through history. Jesus made a habit of keeping the Sabbath. Uh, the disciples and the early Christians all kept the Sabbath. Um, Christians, there has never been a time when Christians have not kept the Sabbath all the way down to modern times. And then the Bible says that it would be kept for eternity. Wouldn't it be kind of weird and a little bit strange and odd if there was a 2,000-year gap in the middle of all of that where God said, no, keep the day of the sun? Mm. That would be a bit strange. But anyway, getting back to uh, Hebrews chapter 4, the Sabbath in Hebrews 4 is a symbol of salvation by grace alone and a rest from us is us resting from trying to be good enough to get in heaven. Now, that you know obviously does not make works a part of the Christian experience. The Bible presents um, obedience, does not present obedience as a means of salvation, but a fruit of salvation. So in other words, we obey not to be saved, but because we are, the Bible says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's what the, what's, what the Bible says. Um However, on the flip side, salvation by grace alone does not exclude good works. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved, through faith, that of not, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are created for good works. People like to leave out verse 10 when they read Ephesians 2, uh, 8 and 9. Um, it doesn't exclude good works. It excludes good works as a means of salvation. So we need to understand some things about salvation to understand Hebrews 4. Um, So salvation by works can be kind of stated this way, that our efforts are being good. 
our efforts being good enough to achieve salvation. That's how you would define salvation by works. Our efforts being good enough to achieve salvation. Um, essentially, a works relationship is when we come to God and we say, look, we know what you say, but what we're doing, that's good enough for you. That's, that's, that's a works attitude towards uh, salvation by grace. Um, on the other hand, salvation by grace is, says, says, I'm so thankful for salvation and for what you've freely provided out of love for you and in response to that grace, I'll do what anything you ask, no questions asked. I'll do, you, you say it, I'll just do it. That is a demonstration of love. And anything other than that kind of attitude is a demonstration of a lack of love. Mm. Okay, so moving on from there, um, obedience is not done away with. Um, by salvation, by grace, else conversion would be irrelevant. Why do I need to change? Why do I need to be different if obedience is, um, is, is done away with? It's not the acts that change. It's the motivation. And this is the difference between works and grace. The acts are the same. The obedience is the same. But in works, you do the things to receive salvation. In grace, you do the things because you have received salvation. Because you have received. It's a response. Uh, Okay, so when we ask the question, you know, um, sorry, when we question what God has asked, and we do things to suit ourselves, we're effectively saying that our actions are good enough for God. So any kind of uh, putting forward our own actions in contrast to God's requests shows essentially a dishonorable and loving, unloving attitude toward God, and that's works. So there's a really good illustration of this in Galatians chapter 4. And I know this is a long answer, but it's an important one. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 22 to 31, you've got the story of Ishmael and Isaac contrasted. And uh, um, one a symbol of salvation by works, the other a symbol of salvation by grace. And in Ishmael, it's basically Abraham saying, my actions and decisions are good enough for God. I will sort this out by myself. And Ishmael is a result of that. That's works. Isaac then is the result of Abraham saying, because of your covenant, your grace and your salvation, I'll do whatever you say, no questions asked. And so that's salvation by grace, and they become a metaphor of these two different forms of salvation, one in which is real and one in which isn't. Okay, so think about this. When you bring Sunday or any other day to God, which is a human invention not found in Scripture other than you know, the Sabbath, um, what we're doing is exactly what Abraham did with Ishmael. We are coming to God and saying, here is our service. We have invented it outside of your instruction, but it's just going to need to suffice. Sorry, God, I know you said to worship on the seventh day, but this is going to have to be good enough for you. That's salvation by works. Um, When we keep the Sabbath on the seventh day, as God said, what we are saying is we're so thankful for your abundant grace, we will do what what you say even when we don't understand what difference it makes. That is a response to grace. Um, And here's where you find that the Sabbath is such a great symbol for salvation by grace alone and the only one of the commandments that can fulfill this role. The other nine commandments, they all have a very obvious reason to exist. It's clear why we don't kill, lie, cheat, steal, etc. That's obvious. Um, It's not clear what difference one day makes above another. All days are alike. The sun goes up, the sun goes down. Sometimes it rains, sometimes it doesn't. They're all the same. 
But by placing this entirely neutral commandment in the centre of his law, God has effectively given a commandment that reveals where our heart is. Mm. The others don't reveal where our, heart, where our heart is, but this one does. Do we obey God because it makes sense to us and there is an obvious reason for it? Or do we serve God because we love him so much we will do anything he says and for no other reason than that he says it? Do we need anything more than that? The fact that God says it. Uh, so with the Sabbath commandment, because it is morally neutral, it's the only one that can give a true reading on our motivation, and thus only the Sabbath can be a symbol of the rest that we find in God's grace. Finally, isn't it strange that in a New Testament, devoid of any mention of a change of the day of worship, the verse that actually says there remains a Sabbath to the people of God is the one that is used by Christians to indicate that either a Sabbath no longer remains or that another day is meant. Yeah, wow. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.